Hi, I'm Pastor Mike Fernandez from Calvary Chapel Twin Cities. Um, good morning. Good morning. Um, you know, normally, and I don't know if the ushers handed them out, but when I get invited to speak at another church other than my own, I usually have people sign a consent form that they will not fall in love with me. I have this problem, I speak at churches, the people fall in love with me, and I, I have to explain to them, I have a church that loves me, so, uh, and then for people that have known me a long time, they, you know, the honeymoon's over, they fell in love, and now the honeymoon's over, they just, they're fine, but I am, as I mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm from up in Minnesota, Calvary Chapel, Twin Cities, I have been pastoring since 1988, I was ordained here at this church. And this church is a special place in my heart. Um, Dwight and I, 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 I look at Dwight as a pastor to me. But over the years, our kind of relationship has changed to where he is a dear friend and makes me feel like a co-laborer with him in Christ. Um, and at the same time, it's been a while since I've spoken here at a conference. I remember a few years back, uh, a conference that, went through the book of Hebrews. I think that was the last time. But uh, it's always a blessing to be here. There's a lot of uh, dear friends that we've made over the years and have been to Israel actually a number of times with Dwight and some of the people here. So that's kind of my background. That's my background. I grew up in Minnesota, got saved while I was in the Marine Corps. You know, when Paul read the, the passage of Scripture... <laughs> And he actually asked me, he says, so where are you teaching from this morning? Because I know it's your practice to read through the section of scripture. And the, and the passage that we're going to be looking at is actually found in Jeremiah chapter 42 and part of 43. But I said, don't read that because it's really depressing. <laughs> read where I'm going to go because I am going to end up in Matthew chapter 7 at the end. He thought I was joking and I, I guess I have a reputation for for joking, but uh, before we do that, I'd like to open in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for this church, for this congregation, fellowship of believers that have a hunger and a desire, Lord, for your word and to come into your presence and to worship you and, and just dedicate themselves to your service. I thank you, Lord, for the friendships that I have developed over the years with the body of Christ here, the, the brothers and sisters, Lord, that I just dearly care for and love. I feel at home. I always feel at home when I'm here. So, Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that you'd bless now the study of your word. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, Jeremiah chapter 42, and um, I know that many of you know the story of the prophet Jeremiah and where we're picking up in this section of scripture, I'm giving you a little bit of background. Where we're picking up at this portion in scripture, Jeremiah has been a prophet warning God's people of his coming judgment. He is known as the weeping prophet because a number of things. He spends 40 years trying to get God's people to repent of the idolatry that had been so pervasive not only in the northern kingdom of Israel, but by this time, the kingdom had been divided, the southern kingdom of Judah. The other reason I think he's known as the weeping prophet is because when you get to the book of Lamentation, which is 
the follow-up to the book of Jeremiah. It's written by Jeremiah, but it's after then God's judgment has taken place. Matter of fact, where we find ourselves here in Jeremiah chapter 42 is after the judgment that Jeremiah the prophet had been warning would come takes place. And so I just want to paint a little bit of a picture or give you some reference so that you understand what's taking place in chapter 42. He has been warning for 40 years, and I'm thinking, 40 years of ministry, and pretty much the nation being unresponsive to that. And there are times that even the prophet, you can tell, he, you know, he wrestles with it. He is persecuted as a result of his faithfulness. He's put in stocks. There's some point where he even says, you know, that's it. And gets to that, that's it point. That's it, Lord. I'm not saying anything anymore on your behalf. I mean, this is how, I mean, he's suffering. And yet at the same time, he says his word was like a fire that burned in me. I couldn't hold it back. I had to be faithful to what God called me to do. The false prophets have been telling the people exactly what they want to hear. The Babylonians are never going to come. An arrow will never be shot here. I mean, you know, they're part of even the persecution of the prophet Jeremiah. But when the Babylonians eventually come in. And the fact that he's been warning them for 40 years demonstrates the mercies of God. He is long-suffering. He isn't willing that any would perish. You know, sometimes people mistake the grace of God or the mercy of God, even though the warning of his coming judgments, they somehow mistake it as God is either incapable of judging or that somehow even approves of how I'm living apart from him. And it's just an opportunity God is giving for his people to repent. And when it comes, when the judgment comes, and even Jeremiah is viewed as weakening the nation because when Nebuchadnezzar's armies come and they lay siege to Jerusalem, Jeremiah is by this point now telling them, okay, just unconditionally surrender that is what God wants except the chastening the discipline of God this is the consequence of sin and the the point now is to be obedient to what God has said to do and yet again now Jeremiah is viewed as a traitor you're working for Nebuchadnezzar you want the Babylonians to succeed I mean You're weakening the nation. All these different accusations. And Jeremiah's just been in this no-win situation, but eventually the city falls. It is destroyed and burned. Many of God's people die as a result. They're carried away captive to Babylon, which is going to be for a period of 70 years. And God has a reason why he's chosen those 70 years. Because, again, their lack of obedience to God's command to keep a Sabbath year. They kept a Sabbath, they kept a Sabbath week. Every week, you know, again, too, they would rest on that seventh day. But God had told them also when they were coming into the land, they were to let the land lay every seventh year to rest. And God promised them. God says, if you trust me, I'll bring such an abundance in the sixth year, you know, your crops and your harvests and you know, your livestock, you're going to have enough to carry you through that seventh year. But he wanted them, and they never did that. They never obeyed God in that particular command. And then for those 70 years, it was to make up for, I think it's the 400. You can do the math. Every seven years, seven times, 
you know, 490 years, take away 70. Anyway, not important. I mean, it is important, but it's math. (laughs) I'm not here to do math. But they're carried away captive. And as a result, then, the king... He actually witnesses his sons being put to death and then his eyes are gouged out, kind of a cruel thing that the Babylonians did. Hey, the last thing you're going to see is us killing your sons. Now we're going to take your eyes out. He is allowed to live, but he's carried away captive as well with the rest of the captives. Gedaliah is a guy that is set up as governor, not as king, but as governor to the Babylonians. There is just a remnant left the city's been burned they have suffered the consequences of their disobedient you know there's this uncertainty and then even then there is this power struggle there is this guy named Ishmael and he's actually you know wanting to subvert this Babylonian governor, Gedaliah, who is Jewish, but he's wanting to to, to take him out, and he ends up assassinating him. And he ends up carrying away the remnant of God's people. He's going to take them to Moab. He's got an agreement with one of the kings of Moab, Baalus. And on the way that they're actually going, there is a group of the soldiers and captains and remaining forces of the armies of God left. Johanan is one of these guys. Jezaniah is another. They're mentioned in chapter 42, verse 1, which is where I'm going to get to in a second. But they end up rescuing the people. And as a result, the scenario that they're left with is, what do we do now? They're in Mizpah when they'd gathered together and Gedaliah was kind of instructing them, but now as a result of the rescue and as a result of not only the assassination of Gedaliah, but Ishmael assassinates or kills the Babylonians as well that are left as part of the governmental structure. So they've not only, you know, this guy Ishmael, he... He's done damage, and Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be a happy king when he finds out what has happened. In all likelihood, the concern or the worry is he's going to come in and finish off this little remnant of God's people that are left in the land. And so that's where we're at in chapter 42. That is the scenario. It is a desperate situation. They are actually on their way down to Egypt because they're thinking Egypt is the only country that hasn't been conquered by the Babylonians. We can, you know, we can be refugees in Egypt. We spent time in Egypt hundreds of years ago. Well, let's go back to Egypt. And that's their solution in the natural. They're looking at the circumstance and they're thinking, where could we go that we would be safe? Where can we go that, again, the Babylonians haven't conquered? Where can we go where we won't suffer the wrath of Nebuchadnezzar? And chapter 42 opens then with them pausing for a second. And I don't know what precipitates this, but they decide we should probably find out what God wants us to do. What do we do now? Even as I say that and kind of paint the scenario of what's going on, I think 
there are different times in our lives where we're faced with an uncertainty. I mean, the last year and a half, two years have been uncertainty. I mean, we've been in uncharted territory. Many times we make decisions or we know what God wants us to do based upon previous experiences. But when everything began to shut down about two years ago, all of a sudden, all the things that were said, and I, even though I grew up in Minnesota, I think I have a little bit of Missouri in me. It's the show me state. I was kind of skeptical initially. We're just going to shut down everything for two weeks, kind of flatten the curve. Please, I don't believe that for a second. Okay, I'll get off on that rant. I get off on that rant. But many times we're faced with we don't know what to do. Now, it says in chapter 42, verse 1, it says, Then all the captains of the forces, and Johanan the son of Carrera, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least, even unto the greatest, came near. And they said unto Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee our supplication. This is old King James. I'm an old dog. I, can't, I, I love old King James. But it says, Let our, let our supplication... Um, be acceptable unto thee, and pray unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant, for we are left but a few of many, as your eyes do behold us, that the Lord your God may show us the way wherein we may walk in the thing that we may do. What do we do now? We need to know and we need to discover what God's will is. Now, here's the thing. Why are they going to Jeremiah? When for 40 years, Jeremiah was the guy that nobody wanted to listen to. They're going to him because God had fulfilled every single thing that the prophet Jeremiah said he would do. He's got credibility. God fulfilled what he said he would do. The judgment came. All the things that God warned them of eventually came to pass. Jeremiah is part of that remnant. Matter of fact, when you know, Jerusalem falls, the captain of the Babylonian army has been instructed specifically about Jeremiah. And again, maybe he thinks that Jeremiah is somehow being favorable, but if you read the wording, the captain of the, of the Babylonian army actually says, this was appointed by the Lord God. He recognizes, even though he probably isn't a worshiper of Jehovah, he recognizes that God had appointed this for his people. But the captain actually says to him, I've been instructed to let you know that if you want to come to Babylon, you're going to be cared for. You're going to be taken care of. And if you don't want to go, you can stay in the land. But the choice is yours. He's giving you. Jeremiah is probably the only guy that has a choice as to what happens. And Jeremiah decides that he wants to stay. And the captain gives him a few shekels and provides for him. But now he's part of this remnant and now they need to know what to do next. Because the fear that they have of retribution, of Nebuchadnezzar coming down now because his government has in a sense been slaughtered, coming down and just wiping out the rest of them is a legitimate fear. You know, the thing, though, is that the enemy uses those fears in our lives many times to cause us to walk in a way that is unwise or to just simply react in the flesh. They're already on their way down to Egypt. And that's actually, the you know, 
but now they're wanting to see, well, what does God have to say? Verse 4 of the passage, Then Jeremiah the prophet said unto them, I have heard you, behold, I will pray unto the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall come to pass that whatsoever thing the Lord shall answer you, I'll declare it unto you, I will keep nothing back from you. That's integrity. Jeremiah, again, for those 40 years, even though it was an unpopular message, he was faithful because he had to answer to God. And James, in his epistle, when he talks about being pastors and teachers, he actually says not to be many. Be not many, you know, because we will receive the greater condemnation or judgment of God. There is a, a higher standard that God holds the teachers of his word, pastors and teachers. They have to answer to God ultimately. There are a lot of churches, a lot of pastors in the pulpit, a lot of ministries where they've made the decision that they're going to give the people what they want to hear. Not all of the counsel of God's word. We just want you to feel comfortable or the community or whatever it is. People don't like coming to church and hear about judgment or wrath. It makes them feel uncomfortable. People don't want to hear about sin. People don't want to hear about heaven and hell. I mean, again, it is something that is just pervasive now in the church landscape. It's rare that there is a church or churches that are teaching through all of God's word. Matter of fact, the apostle Paul when he is saying his goodbyes to the Ephesian elders, he actually tells them, I haven't shunned, I haven't held back anything from teaching you all of God's word. I'm, I'm free from the blood of all men. You know, nobody could, could accuse the Apostle Paul of ever, ever leaving out. I mean, sometimes it's not just what a, a church or a pastor or a ministry says, it's what they leave out. And, and, and Jeremiah says, I'm not going to leave anything out. I've heard what you, verse four, I've heard what you've asked and I'm going to go to the Lord and I'm going to tell you what he says and I'm not going to keep anything back. Matter of fact, there's I think three or four occasions in God's word uh, in the Proverbs, the end of the book of Revelation, but there's three or four places where God actually tells his people, he tells them not only to write it down and to declare everything, but not to leave anything out. And Jeremiah says, I'm not going to leave anything out. Verse 5, this is how the people respond to what the prophet says. Then they said to Jeremiah, the Lord be true and faithful witness between us, if we do not even according to all things for the which the Lord your God shall send you to us. Now, I don't know if you can catch this in the wording, but in the old King James, basically what they're doing is they're making a vow, a commitment. You know, the Lord be true and a faithful witness. We're, in a sense, we're doing this before God and everybody that we promise that we will do everything, all things which the Lord your God shall send to you, whether it be good or whether it be evil, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. There is a recognition, or at least what they're saying. They're saying the right things. To whom we send you that it may be well with us. What they're saying is actually true. When we're obedient to God and we're walking in his will. Then we recognize that it will be 
well with me. It'll be well. It doesn't mean you won't suffer. It doesn't mean, again, to everything is always going to work out the way you want it to. But, but from an eternal perspective, it will be well. Why? Because I'm walking in obedience to God's will. Because ultimately the things of this life are temporary at best. And so many times we make decisions based upon the temporary versus the eternal and being in right relationship with God. But they make this pledge, this commitment. One of the things that's very clear, and you'll see this in the next chapter, they were lying. (laughs) Spoiler alert if you haven't read. And actually I'm going to go into verse 43, but I mean chapter 43, but it says there in verse 7, And it came to pass after ten days that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, then called he Johanan the son of Carrera, and the captains of the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even unto the greatest, and said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, unto whom you sent me to present your supplication before him. And this is what he's now going to tell them. God is saying in verse 10, if you will still abide in this land, then will I build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up. I, for I, this is God saying this, for I repent me of the evil that I have done unto you. Now, one thing that I should point out, when God says I repent, it's different than when man says I repent. Because in order for man to repent, there has to be some remorse. The word repent can literally mean to change the direction that I'm going in. And when God says, I repent, what he is saying is, there isn't any remorse. God's judgments are always righteous and true. It's that God is saying, I am going to turn from the direction that I have been dealing with you as a nation. And he says then in verse 11, and he addresses their fears. He promises that, that, that he'll build them up and not pull them down. He'll plant them and not pluck them up. But he also then addresses their fear. Because again, so many times, you know, what about this, Lord? What about this fear that I have? What about the consequences of doing this? Years ago, I, I got a call from a woman. And I should say, normally, I don't counsel women at all unless there is another woman present or if the office my office door is open if a woman wants to ask me something but it was my cousin and she's a dear cousin of mine and she actually laid out this scenario of a situation she was in and I remember telling her this is what you need to do And in her mind, she knew that the consequences, she had it all figured out, what would happen. But this, if I, if I, if I do what God's word says to, then this is what's going to happen. And I said, but see, that's part of what God wants you to do. God's word says in 1 John chapter 1, if we confess our faults, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And there was part of that element as well that needed to be dealt with. But there's a fear. And yet God doesn't say, okay, 
your fear is an irrational one. What God says he's going to do is he's going to protect him from the consequence of our fear. Verse 11, be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Be not afraid of him, says the Lord, for I am with you to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show mercies unto you that he may have mercy upon you and cause you to return to your own land. You know, so many times when it comes to God dealing with us, I find that the Lord wants us to do the exact opposite of what our flesh wants to do. Matter of fact, with the prophet Jeremiah, when he tells them, go out and surrender, we're not going to surrender. We've never done that. We're not going to do that. The flesh is thinking somehow if we stayed hunkered down, if we stayed, you know, the city walls, God has chosen to put his name upon the city of Jerusalem. You know, God's not going to forsake it. We've got the temple here. The people were had this expression, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. I mean, somehow they, they viewed the temple as a lucky charm. Or I mean, all these different reasons why they thought the judgment would never take place. But there is no way we're going out and surrendering. And now that they have been defeated and God has been true, and now that they're in this situation and a new circumstance, and now that they've sought the Lord and the Lord says not to be afraid, now I want you to stay and not to be afraid. And not only that, you don't have to be afraid of the king because God says, I'm going to save you. In verse 11, I'm going to deliver you from his hand and I'm going to show mercies. God's faithfulness to show his mercy when we don't deserve it. But there is a a humbling of ourselves. And yet at the same time, that's what God says for them to do. That's what do we do now? This is what you do. You stay. Not to be fearful. The Bible says God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, I already mentioned kind of the beginning of the virus and when everything began to take place. And uh, I got a call from a, a friend of mine, another pastor. It wasn't Dwight. And for those of you that know Chick, it wasn't Chick either. <laughs> but the town that he pastors in, he was really upset. Not only did our did the state he was pastoring in have all these mandates imposed? But the city council of the town that he was pastoring in, they are putting all these additional restrictions and all these different things. And he's just all fired up. He's just all, just, he needed somebody to vent and talk to and just, again, to, you know, just share his burden with. And he calls me up and he is just all fired up and he's mad and he's angry and... I want, and he's going to city council meetings and, you know, all these different things. And, and, and as I was talking to him, I, I said, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, what did you think was going to happen between when Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 2 and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church to Revelation chapter 22, the end of the story and and again, to all the seven years that are going to take place for the tribulation, what did you think was going to happen between then and now? Do you think things are going to get better? 
it's going to get worse prophetically. Now, there might be kind of a pause right now going on. But I am confident in what God's word says. Even too, I guess the parallel could be drawn between the prophet Jeremiah warning of the coming judgment of God. One of the things that we know as believers is when Jesus ascended into heaven and the disciples are looking up and the angel says to him, men of Galilee, of Jerusalem, what are you looking up? The same Jesus that you've seen ascended into heaven, he's going to return in like manner. We're to look up. For our redemption draws near. The early church was persecuted severely. The apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about the persecution that he went through personally. That actually separated him from the false prophets and teachers. I'll get to this in a second. Or I'll get back to this in a second. But it, you know we're always to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ. And that's the hope that we have. Our hope isn't in the things of this world. Verse 13, and he tells them, God says, this is what I'll do for you if you're obedient. But God warns them what he will do, or he warns them what they shouldn't do, which is what they're already doing. They're already on their way to Egypt. And in verse 13, but if you say we will not dwell in the land, neither obey the voice of the Lord your God, saying no, but we will go into the land of Egypt where we will see no war, nor hear the sound of trumpet, nor have hunger of bread, and there will we dwell. Verse 15, and now therefore hear the word of the Lord. You remnant of Judah. And maybe the remnant is thinking, we survived so far. We survived the judgment of God. We survived the Babylonian invasion. We survived, you know, being taken away captive. We survived Ishmael trying to take us to Moab. We've survived so far. Thank you very much. We must be doing something right. And we think we should go to Egypt. Maybe they're thinking that. Again, who knows what people think. But God is warning them not to do this and God is going to tell them what will happen verse 15 now therefore the word of the Lord you remnant of Judah thus says the Lord of hosts the God of Israel if you wholly set your faces to enter into Egypt and to go into sojourn or to live there verse 16 then it shall come to pass that the sword which you feared shall overtake you in the land of Egypt and the famine whereof you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt and there you shall die and it shall be and it shall be with all the men that set their faces to go to Egypt to sojourn there or to live there they shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence and none of them shall remain or escape from the evil that I will bring upon them. See, it's a wonderful thing to know of the blessings of God, the protection and the provision of God. But it all is based upon obedience to God. Matter of fact, when the children of Israel are coming into the land of Canaan, the tribes are broken up into two tribes. I think it's in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 29, where half of the tribes are on one side of the mountain and the other half are on another mountain. And as then the, the, the congregation or as the nation is passing between these two mountains in the valley, half of them are pronouncing the blessings of God if you obey his commandments. And the other half are warning them of the consequences of disobedience and of departing from God. 
And God is telling them, if you go down to Egypt again, God is able to see things from the beginning to the end. He knows exactly what his plans are. God's people are making a decision based on the here and now. They don't realize Nebuchadnezzar, Egypt's next on the list anyway as far as lands to conquer. You've already survived the famine and the pestilence and the shock of being conquered. And even though it does put them in fear of not only the Babylonians, but as a remnant even of their enemies that surround them. But God has put them in a position where they have to trust him. Verse 18, for thus says the Lord God of hosts of Israel, as my anger and my fury has been poured forth on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so shall my fury be poured forth upon you. This is if they go to Egypt. When you shall enter into Egypt and you shall be an execration and an astonishment and a curse and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. The Lord God hath said this concerning you, O you remnant of Judah. Go not into Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day. Verse 20. And see, this is where then the revealing of the motive of their heart. God says, for you dissembled in your heart. You've already decided in your heart what you were going to do. You were just hoping that God was going to put the rubber stamp on it. You know, as a pastor over the years, I've been pastoring for a little over 33 years. There are times that people come to me for counsel or for advice. Normally, again, too, it's pretty easy to kind of advise people. Because you go to God's word and the things that are found in God's word are pretty simple. They're pretty black and white. A child understands God's word. A child understands, again, the difference between right and wrong. A child understands obedience, might not always obey but a child understands those concepts. And sometimes when, they, when people have come to me for advice or counsel, and I, after listening to them, and I also recognize the tendency, like these people, they come to Jeremiah, you know, what do we do now? We'll do. They make that vow, that commitment. We promise to do whatever God says. They say the right things. You know, and again, I could point to other people, but I'm guilty of that. We, we, want, we want to do, hopefully, what we want to do, and we hope that God rubber stamps it. And as the, over the years of, at times where someone has asked me for advice or counsel, and I go to God, God's word, and scripture says that there's wisdom in the multitude of counselors. I love going to godly men and women and asking them, for their advice. Men and women that are wiser, more mature, more experienced than me sometimes. But sometimes people are just looking for someone that's going to say what they want to hear. So they might present their case to five different people or pastors, and then when they hear the one that does what they want to hear or says what they want to hear, then they're thinking, Ah, well, the Lord told me through Pastor Mike that I can do this or do that. Okay, the problem is the condition of a person's heart. Are they really willing? You dissemble in your hearts. 
when you sent me unto the Lord your God. Verse 20. Pray for us unto the Lord our God. And according to all that the Lord our God shall say, so declare unto us and we will do it. He's just reciting what they said they would do. The vow that they said that they would keep. And now I have declared unto you this day, but you've not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God, nor anything for the which he hath sent me unto you. He brings up, Jeremiah does, brings up, or God brings up their past track record as far as obeying the voice of God. Like I said, people will ask me, I will tell them, and it's always a simple thing, but our flesh wars against the spirit. You know, it's a tendency that we have. People can be very fickle, is maybe the right way to put it. And I think about the opposite of being fickle is being loyal. I'm going to be loyal to God. I'm going to be loyal to where God has put me or called me. I recognize it. He says, I've declared but he warns them there in the closing verses. But you haven't obeyed in the past anything that God has sent me unto you. Now therefore know certainly that you will die by the sword, the famine and the pestilence in the place whither you desire to go and to sojourn. Jeremiah lays it out. And actually at this point there's a response still that God's people can respond with. There's kind of two choices, really. There's the, you're right, Jeremiah, the Lord is right. And we were wrong. There's a line from a kid's movie. I don't like quoting movie lines, but, well, I do. I Pastor Chuck once warned of doing that in the pulpit because he says sometimes that's an endorsement of a movie, but I think it's from the movie Megamind. And the character that's the villain in that says to the fish who's his sidekick, you were right, I was less right. couple weeks ago in our own fellowship and I was teaching at a portion of scripture and I was talking about the importance of repentance and of humility and being able to say I'm wrong I am wrong I actually was kind of exhorting the men in our fellowship because I find that women probably have a softer more tender heart my wife hates it when there's any type of you know, broken fellowship or conflict in our house. We take seriously what the word of God says, not to let the sun go down on your wrath. We, in the 38 years we've been married, you know, we know what God's word says. And, and early in our marriage, we, we hardly fight now, which is great. Um, but, but in our first few years, I mean, the gloves would come off all the time. And we'd be laying there in bed, and, and you know we had a queen-size bed, so it's not that big that we could separate ourselves, but it's not that small to where we're right next to each other. But we would go, go to bed mad, even though the scripture says, don't let the sun go down in your wrath. But then we would both turn our shoulders against from each other, 
And at the same time, we were both awake. We wanted the other to say, I'm sorry first. And we would grunt or clear my throat, let you know I'm still awake. I'm laying here for two hours, but I'm still waiting for you to apologize. Sometimes I'd wake my wife up doing that. Huh? What? Oh, yeah. (laughs) But a few weeks ago, I was kind of admonishing the guys in our fellowship. I said, you know, women probably have a much easier time saying I'm sorry or I was wrong. So just as an exercise, I had the men in the church say I was wrong. I'm not going to make you guys do this because you're not my church. But we have great difficulty, and the people are faced with two decisions here. We were wrong. God is right. Or the other decision is to reject that in chapter 43, and I'm only going to read into the first seven verses of the chapter. But even though they have suffered at the hands of God, and God has proven himself faithful every time to do what he says he's going to do, And even though they came and they made this vow and this commitment, we'll do no matter whatever God says to do, good or bad, we're going to do it. And then when Jeremiah lays it out, don't go down into the land. And if you do, you're going to die there. This is their response, chapter 43, verse 1. It came to pass when Jeremiah had made an end of speaking all this unto the people, the words of the Lord their God, for which the Lord their God had sent unto him even all these words, then spake, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Carrera. And notice how it describes them, and all the proud men. God's word says that pride comes before a fall. It is man in his pride that thinks he knows better than God. All the proud men, saying unto Jeremiah, verse 42, Thou speakest falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, Go not into Egypt to sojourn there. But Baruch the son of Neriah sets you on against us for to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that he may put us to death and carry us away captive into Babylon. They basically say, He didn't say that. God didn't tell you didn't tell us not to go down to Egypt. And they even got a, a, you know, we know, Jeremiah, you've been influenced by Baruch. Now, if you have read the book of Jeremiah or studied it in the past, Baruch was like Jeremiah's right-hand guy. Matter of fact, when the Lord instructs Jeremiah to write down the prophecies of the coming judgment and what he's going to do, not only to the nation of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, but the surrounding nations as well, the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Egyptians, you know, he is to go into the temple and to read this scroll that Jeremiah has given. Because they won't kill Baruch. They'll kill Jeremiah if he's reading it. And as a result, they're thinking, it's Baruch. He's the guy that's actually, we treated him poorly. We, we persecuted him as well. He's got an axe to grind against us. He's bitter and angry. And, and Jeremiah, he's just influenced you. I mean, they've got it all worked out in their mind as to the intent. And ultimately, in verse 4, on to verse 7, it says that Johanna, the son of Carrera, and all the captains of the forces, and all the people obeyed not the voice of the Lord which dwell in the land of Judah. But Johanna, the son of Carrera, and all the captains of the forces took the remnant of Judah that were there, 
and returned from all nations whither they had been driven to dwell in the land of Judah, even men and women and children and the king's daughters and every person that Nebuchadnezzar, the captain of the guard, had left with Gadaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. So they came into the land of Egypt, for they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, and they came even unto Taphanes. These are soldiers... And they're taking everybody whether they want to go or not, and Jeremiah's included. Now, as I mentioned, and I'll wrap this up as quickly as I can because I want to get to some application. As I mentioned, they were faced with this decision as to be obedient to the word of God. And real simply... If you find yourself in a situation, you have to ask the question, what do I do now? And granted, their circumstances may be a little bit different because you're dealing with people that have been rebellious in the past. But in answering that question, what do I do now? I think that there's, you know, the answers are found within the text. First of all, it is something that has been repeated over and over and is even mentioned that they're not going to obey. Three things. Obey, repent, and put your faith in God. Pretty much you can apply that to every circumstance you're in. Maybe not in that particular order, but for somebody who's in rebellion, that's the order. Obedience to what God says you should do. I love, again, too, you know, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, 15, and is the situation with Samuel and Saul, the first king. He was instructed in chapter 15 to wipe out all the Amalekites. And he doesn't. And he keeps the best, the spoils. And when the prophet Samuel shows up, Saul acts like he's been obedient. Behold, blessed of the Lord, you know, I've done all that God has commanded me. Samuel's thinking, if you wiped out everything, including all the livestock, how come I'm hearing the lowing of the cows and the bleeding of the sheep? Why am I hearing livestock? Why am I hearing cows mooing? Why am I hearing sheep bleeding? And Saul makes an excuse. Well, you know, we saved the best because we're going to offer it and sacrifice unto God. And Samuel's answer to that in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, has the Lord a great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice than to hearken, than, uh, and to hearken and to listen than the fat of rams. God's not interested in what you can give him or what you can do for him. He has everything. The psalmist says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's interested in something that you can give that only you can give, and that's obedience. That I can give, obedience. Lord, I'm going to obey, even if it's hard. Now for them, the second thing is repentance. And it's obvious that there hasn't been a genuine repentance. They just simply want to know what to do next. What do we do next? Now, interesting, if you were talking to a non-believer and they come to you and they're going through some trial, you have an opportunity to share the gospel. I think the first step is different. 
instead of obedience to God. The non-believer has no concept of obedience to God. We as believers do because we have his word as a guide to us. I've known Christians that say, well, I don't want to read the Bible because then I become accountable for it. (laughs) Really? You think God's going to spare you? Oh, you didn't know about that commandment? (laughs) I won't judge you for that. But repentance. But the second one is repentance. You know, there's a, a wonderful thing when in our humility we recognize we were wrong, but we're willing to confess it as sin. You know, one of the things that repentance deals with, and I mentioned the pride of these men, is so many times in our pride, we just cannot somehow come to that place where we're broken and where we're wrong. And Jesus actually talked of him being that stone, that the builders rejected that stone, that if a man falls upon him, he's going to be broken. To fall upon the Lord Jesus Christ means that you have now in a sense, a broken life, but it is something that then God restores to strength and uses for his glory. I love the whole story of Jacob and coming back into the land in Genesis chapter 32 after being away from his brother Esau for, I think, 20 years, and he's faced with having this unresolved conflict with him, and then he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord. I believe it's Jesus Christ all night long. And And when he realizes he can't win and Jacob is thinking, I've got to go face this conflict. And last thing my brother Esau wanted to said he wanted to do was kill me. Let me go. You know, and actually the angel is saying, or Jesus is saying, let me go. The day is breaking. And and Jacob is saying, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And what does he do? He puts his hip out of joint. Uh, I asked for a blessing. From that point on though, you know, and he asks him, what's your name? Jacob. Jacob sounds like such a great name, and I know many Christians that have named their, their sons Jacob, and probably Jacob's here in the congregation. But you know what the name means, right? Con man. Okay, that's kind of my interpretation of it. Heel catcher, supplanter. I want to replace you. I mean, and when he says, what's your name? He says, Jacob. He says, okay, well, from now on, your name's going to be Israel, governed by God. But he's broken. But Jesus says, the person, if you, if, if you don't fall upon him and are broken, then the stone will fall upon you and you will be crushed into powder and the wind is going to blow you away. I mean, the choice is yours either way. But the choice is yours. But with repentance, the wonderful thing is, The price has been paid for our sin through Jesus Christ. And just simply by saying, I am going to turn from living my own life in my own selfish way, and I'm going to trust him no matter what happens. Because God is bigger and God is still in control. I think it was J. Vernon McGee used to begin every radio program with, you know, God is in the heavens and God is on the throne. And prayer changes things, I think was what he said. God is still in control, no matter how dire the circumstance is. And if you're not in a right relationship with him, the way to deal with that is through repentance. But the last thing is faith in God. And that's what the prophet tells him, tells this group of people, not to be afraid, 
God will deliver you. God will show his mercies to you. Verses 11 and 12 of the chapter 42. I think so many times we think that faith in God, and, and you know, the writer of Hebrews actually mentions this, of how important it is to have faith. And faith isn't something that, again, to is doing crazy things and then attributing it to faith. I heard a great analogy of faith one time, an illustration. I mean, we live in Minnesota. Our ice, you know, you're beginning to see the ice on the lakes beginning to form and for it to, to you know, to, to begin to turn into ice. And, and I remember one time hearing this illustration because sometimes in our immaturity, we think that faith is venturing out on thin ice. I'm going to trust the Lord, even though this seems too crazy, and I know that the ice shouldn't support my weight, but I'm going to walk out on it. And boom, you go through the ice and you suffer. But it's a recognition of how thick the ice really is. I can have confidence in that ice because there's eight inches of ice there. It'll sustain my body. I think at 10 or 12 inches, you can drive your pickup truck on it. Take your ice house out onto the lake and begin to ice fish. And the thing is, when it comes to faith, it's not, again, I'll just read what the writer of Hebrews says about faith. Verse 1, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For, it, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and it speaks, and by it, he being dead yet speaks. And I just want to jump down to verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And the rest of the chapter are those who have exercised their faith. And Sometimes the things that they suffered in exercising their faith, but recognizing that by putting my faith in God, I will live the rest of eternity with him. Those three things. I'm going to close in a word of prayer. And actually one last passage, and actually Paul read it. And again, being obedient to God doesn't keep us from the trials, our faith in God or repentance and a right relationship doesn't keep you from the trials. It allows you to weather them when they come. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, Therefore, whosoever hears, this is Jesus saying this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built a house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine, and does them not, shall be likened unto the foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Lord, we thank you so much for the confidence that we can have in you and in your word 
And Lord, your faithfulness throughout our lives, we've seen that. And Lord, help us to, again, put into perspective the things of this life and how temporary they are versus eternity with you. And Lord, if there's anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would surrender to you, that there would be that repentance and that turning to you, that putting their faith in you, and then being obedient to the things that are clearly said in your word. Bless this church, Lord, and continue to do the work that you desire to do through it. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus, that I pray. Amen.